Okay, thank you, Estelle. Our next uh, speaker is Catherine Clark um, on the topic of From Trash to Treasure, Lost Value in the Photographic Archive. Um, Catherine Clark is Assistant Professor of French Studies and Class of 1947 Career Development Chair in the Department of Global Studies and Languages at MIT. She's a specialist in the history of modern France, photography, and Paris. Her book, Paris and the Cliché of History, The City and Photographs, 1860 to 1970, is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Um, she's currently working on the history of commercial street photographers and the French interest in China since 1949. Catherine Tours. Thanks, Joan, for that introduction. Um, I am, needless to say, I'm delighted to be here. So thank you so much for inviting me. Um, and thank you all for um, what's been a really wonderful conference of, of sharing ideas about um, about photography, about archives, about, about multiple registers of meaning. Um, just make sure I'm set up here. Okay. So, this is sort of a one-off research topic for me, um, but it, I think it, it, it ultimately ends up fitting into my interest in amateur photography and in photography as history, um, and particularly in popular and visual history. So last winter I had a fellowship in Cassis, which is a small town in the south of France. Um, it's about uh, a half an hour from Marseille. And I had an apartment that looked out over the bay. I was writing a book, um, and so I didn't leave the house very much. But one night, I was invited to dinner at a filmmaker's place, and she introduced me to a friend of hers who was a TV producer, um, also a film producer. Uh, she was Swedish. Her name was Elizabeth Halton. Uh, and she had lived in France for many years. She had started life as a photographer, and then she had transitioned to production. Um, and she had run historical programming for Arte, uh, the Franco-German uh, channel for, for many decades. Um, I told her a bit about who I was, and, and pretty soon she sort of leaned in and, and she whispered something to me and she said, I have something for you in my cafouge. Um, and the cafouge is a, is a very Marseille term for, for a kind of um, a storage room, a storage room that's usually uh, badly organized um, um, and uh, uh, something you would not necessarily share with a stranger. Um, and so alongside the copy machine and the mops and the accounting documents and the spare manila folders sat tens of thousands of amateur photographs um, in her production company. So here, uh, uh, sorry, here's a picture of, of the cafouge. Um, and this is post, uh, a post a leak that required the cafouge to be cleared out um, and, then, and then reorganized. So these were amateur photos. Um, some of them were loose, some of them were still in albums, and they had been collected uh, by the production company over the course of about a, a six or seven year period in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, so she asked me if I wanted to come and see them, and of course I did. So I went to Marseille and I spent um, quite a few afternoons in, in the cafouge. Um, and so when I went for, first went there, I was interested in these, in these types of photos. So um, commercial street vendor photographs, they're made by photographers who took your picture on the street and handed you a ticket, and then the next day you could go and buy this photo um, from the person. They're kind of notoriously difficult to work on because museums do not collect this stuff. Um, and kind of get a, a, other iterations of them. Um, so like many of us, I kind of first went to this archive as a source for individual photos before I really thought of it as an archive. But if we do explore it as an archive, which is what I'm going to do in the next 18 minutes, uh, it's one that raises questions about multiple registers of, of photographic value, about effective 
uh, aesthetic, monetary, and historical value. Um, and how these values shift as photographs are bought, sold, reproduced, and produced on television. So with my title, I'd like to propose um, the kind of trash to treasure narrative as, as one way of thinking about this archive. But I'd also like to argue that this archive challenges that narrative um, as, it is, as it is commonly told about the history of photography. So most versions of trash to treasure, um, even when they involve large quantities of photographs, are narratives that are ultimately about singularity. They're about photos that are bought for pennies at auction um, or at a flea market that turn out to be artistic gems and whose value kind of is inestimably higher than that which they were purchased for. Um, they're narratives of singularity in the fact that the photo's value lies in the fact that they are attributable to an individual, whether known or unknown, and, and there are lots of these stories, and I think you can all think of them. Um, so, uh, you know, there was a, a man in, in 2000 who bought 65 negatives at a yard sale in Fresno, and they turned out to be Ansel Adam, uh, Ansel Adam negatives. Um, sometimes the finder doesn't so much prove that what he or she has found is already valuable as create value for the find. Um, and, and sort of drumming up uh, uh, a treasure, if you will. Um, and this is how we might think of the story of John Maloof, um, who bought uh, a box at an auction house in Chicago, um, a box of negatives. Um, they were the contents of a former nanny's storage unit, and, this, and he's the guy behind Finding Vivian Mayer. Um, since then, with exhibitions, books, and even a documentary, Maloof has been arguing for the artistic value of his find. So. Vivian Mayer is undoubtedly a kind of a, a talented observer of human nature. We could talk about the kind of aesthetic merits of these photographs. But uh, what I think is interesting for me in this story is how Maloof himself comes off sort of distastefully in all of this. Um, so he ends up spinning a story that's less about finding Vivian Mayer and more about finding fame and fortune for himself. Um, and so in the next 15 minutes, I'd like to think through how the photos in the archive that I found um, so the production company is called Sigel and Vag, um, uh, and how, how these photos changed places, how they lost and gained in value as they made their way into this archive, and, and, and then also how the archive worked in the service of television, how they acquired new values. And, and I, sort of, I want you to keep in mind these trash to treasure narratives and, and, and think, about, think through this archive alongside um, this kind of stereotypical story of the history of photography. So by the time I encountered them, these photos in the Café de Marseille had, uh, had already changed places multiple times. So they had gone from, the homes, uh, from homes to tables of open-air markets all over Europe. Uh, they'd started life as intimate and effective, uh, effective objects, carefully pasted into albums, tucked into envelopes, or perhaps simply piled into old suitcases along with newspaper clippings, Super 8 phones, um, old prints, family photos, kind of all of the kind of jumble that you find um, in yard sales. Um, but in order to end up for sale, the photos had lost kind of any effective meaning that they once had. These are the photos, and we talked about this this morning in visiting the, uh, the, um, the Christchurch Library, about how uh, album photos, photos carefully pasted into albums within two generations, people forget about um, who these people are and why the photos matter. Um, and so in transitioning to the market, they had kind of they acquired um, monetary values. And so everything I'm going to show you today is from the Cafouge, it's from, it's from Marseille. Um, and you can see, they're getting, you get traces of where these photos came from, so kind of in the upper um, left-hand corner of the back of this picture, you can see a little 10, so you know, they perhaps sold for 10 francs. Um, same thing kind of in, in other photos, uh, 
you'll get this kind of you know, 40 francs up in the corner. Uh, as Clément Chéhou has explained, photographic postcard paper was the cheapest type of photo paper available for most of the first decades of the 20th century. It was often used by professional photographers, but it was also often what amateurs uh, chose to have their photos printed on. And so um, a lot of the photos that are in this archive um, are photographic postcards, and I think that that's uh, an interesting, uh, gives, tells us something interesting about how photos entered the market in the late 1980s and early 1990s, is that they entered into uh, a kind of market that was already used to photographic, uh, sorry, photographic postcard collectors. And so there, that one can imagine these postcards kind of uh, put into an existing structures of photographic um, postcard collection at a time when people weren't really necessarily collecting amateur photographs. Um, and people also often in the, in the world of jumble sales and, and in the Finding Vivian Mayer, uh, John Maloof uh, talks about this, that, that people, um, for the most part, have thrown away negatives um, instead of selling them because they didn't have value on the market. So the production company had bought these photos from the limbo of the market, um, but they had bought them not with the idea of making a singular discovery, uh, but with the idea of the value of quantity in mind. So they were assembling a collection of photographs with historical rather than aesthetic criteria. And I think for everyone who's looking for the next uh, unknown artist, there are also people who buy at, at, at flea markets for their research. And I know Lucy and I have talked about this, and Lucy's a great, a great um, hunter in, in flea markets. Um, so the production company was also kind of like us, more in researcher mode than in collector mode when buying, and so they would buy everything, everything they can find. So from the market, uh, the photos went into the archive, uh, where they were again acquired new registers of value as they were organized. And so all of those that uh, weren't so, uh, already in albums, so there are kind of four shelves of them now, uh, you can see the albums stacked on the right side of the, the left-hand image here. Um, but the other ones were, were put into these boxes, these cardboard boxes. Um, and they were sorted by country and subject, um, by several years of interns and, and even the children of, of um, Elizabeth and Paul, the producers uh, who are in charge now. So the countries included France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Switzerland, Great Britain, uh, Portugal, and Spain. Um, the photos were then subcategorized by subject or theme, so portraits, um, kind of, and then subdivided into women, friends, women and children, father and son, um, old couples, school groups, babies, holidays, sports, winter sports, summer sports, tourism, interior and exterior work, trains, planes, and cars, landscapes and monuments, animals, etc., etc. So, um, and within these classifications, you find all sorts of different types of snapshots. So these are kind of little, um, kind of uh, one and a half inch by one and a half inch uh, uh, snapshot photos. Uh, but you'll also find things like um, a kind of cardboard backed, much larger format, uh, formal studio portrait. The organizational system here is not interested in the history of photography, so these things are all jumbled together. Um, but rather, it's invested in, in history through photographs. Um, so it's not interested. It's neither interested in repurposing photos for multiple uses. Each photo was given one uh, designation. They weren't cross-referenced. There was no indexing. There was no way to find them um, kind of outside of these folders. Um, the albums were simply stacked. And you can see them on the right here again, numbered so that if photos were removed, they could be put back in. Um, and most of the loose photos are kind of Western, uh, from Western Europe, but the albums are, are kind of more geographically diverse. So there are albums from the Czech Republic. There are albums um, written in Cyrillic. Uh, um, and so Elizabeth has told me that they bought photos um, throughout Eastern Europe as well. Um, 
And this is only part of the archive they once had because their archive was much larger. They had put all of their own family photos into this archive and they had borrowed um, photos from friends and acquaintances and neighbors and, and interns and, um, and all of those photos had been given back by the time I got there. But these photos weren't required to sit in a storage room. Um, so we have to follow them to their next destination and, and they went on television. So the producers had collected all of these amateur photos in order to make a program, program called Souvenir Souvenir or Memory Memory. Um, that consisted of old songs set over montages of old photographs. Uh, each installation was a minute and 30 seconds, and they ended up making 130 of them. These originally ran on Arte um, in 1992, but they were also sold as fillers to other uh, stations, um, including stations in Portugal and Norway, as well as the version of France 3, the third French uh, station that ran in Oceania. Uh, fillers are short footage that are used to make up gaps in programming schedules, so from um, the beginning of television, television was mostly live and, and didn't have necessarily standard running times, and so you would buy these kind of filler programs that could make up a minute and a half um, in, in your schedule here and there. Um, so thus far about at this conference, we've talked mostly about photos making a leap from kind of physical archives to the dematerialization of the digital, with of course the microfilm in, in the middle is this bridge, but there's also a long history of uh, photographs on television and, and of photographs circulating on television um, that I think prefigure some of the questions that we think about when we talk about digital photography and digital archives um, and television production companies. So film studios had large photographic libraries, but so did television production companies. And, and I don't think we know enough about um, these ways in which photographs were, were used um, and deployed. So this series was sold as a, quote, imaginary almanac, um, and I'm citing here from documents I found in the archive that had been used as scrap paper um, in amongst the, the photographs. Um, so you always photograph the back of, uh, backs of things <laughs> when you're in the archive. Um, so it was sold as an imaginary almanac of Europe from 1900 to 1950. Uh, the production synopsis described how in these decades in Europe, uh, quote, millions of amateur photographs had been taken. At the same time, hundreds of songs had circulated, um, remade from country to country. And so the show put these two types of cultural artifacts together, and in a way it's a kind of an odd couple pairing because the photographs have been forgotten, kind of stripped of their effective meaning, um, and the but the photos were still um, pretty well known and had often been re-recorded in different languages. In their words, though, um, the photos kind of could be recuperated by putting them into contact with the songs. And so for the most part, these are lighthearted, positive pictures of the past. They mix professional um, and amateur photos, a kind of set of both real snapshots and imaginary worlds constructed for the camera. A segment set to Reda Kerr's 1943, uh, Je voudrais un petit bateau, so I would like a little boat, um, includes both snapshots like this one of kind of people and their boats, um, boats of all sizes, I should say. Um, as well as the kind of studio set uh, fantasy world um, in which people might inhabit boats. Similarly, segments about soldiers and sailors, so set to um, uh, kind of songs about the Navy, including Jean Murat's uh, Les Gars de la Marine, so the, the guys of the Marine, the Marines, uh, figure this kind of lighthearted sides of service. So you get um, photos, this is an amateur photo, and on the back, uh, the person had written, like, a, this is a fond memory of a day of corvée, so a day of forced labor, peeling potatoes. Um, but to also things like um, photos taken on permission on, on, le on shore leave. Um, so similarly, uh, so this is a very optimistic vision of the first decades of the 20th century. Um, and, and we could talk about the kind of content of this history, but I'm also interested in, in how, uh, how the photos changed 
um, and and how they did how the this value came out of it this kind of discursive place of the photograph in showing history on television. And so what I'd like to propose for you is kind of three transformations that happen to these photos when they go on TV. So the first one is that, uh, is that they began to move. So the production company had bought a state-of-the-art rostrum camera, which is a camera mounted above a platform that can be moved. So you can animate the photo, you can move the photo around. Um, so with it, they could kind of pan over photos, they could zoom in on details. And I haven't actually seen any of the series. They're, they're um, not at the National Audiovisual Archive in France. I have to, I have to go to Arte to see them. Um, but I have seen shooting scripts. And so what you get is um, uh, kind of a sense of how the camera was supposed to be moving over the photographs in order to create meaning from them. So in a segment set to Edith Piaf's uh, c'est lui que mon cœur a choisi, it's he who is my heart has chosen, the camera wove its the way through photos of newlyweds. It opened with a close-up of the faces of this couple, um, and then it zoomed out to see them in their wedding finery. The next two photos uh, were treated in the same way, so close-ups on faces and then zooming out. Um, the camera then zoomed in on the bouquet uh, in this photograph um, before kind of panning up to the faces um, and, and, and then zooming out to the whole bodies. Um, and so sometimes uh, you get the sense that like the camera just needed to move around to make photographs interesting. And these photos would be on the screen for between three and four seconds, um, which is a long time to look at a still image on television. Um, but at other times, it really seems like the camera is making meaning out of, out of the, the photographs and out of the movements it's, it's using. So it's drawing attention to detail and, and producing, um, producing meaning into the photo. So here, for example, the camera panned, and this was from a, a segment about friendship. Um, this photo is blurry in real life. Uh, and the camera panned from the shadow that you can see of the photographer on the bottom of the picture up to the, the group that's being photographed. So kind of drawing a conceptual link between the, the photographer and the group. Um, in this photo, they kind of read the babies from left to right, sort of panning over um, uh, the group of children and, and creating a, a link that may not exactly have existed amongst these babies, um, thinking about friendship. Um, but the sort of second transformation I'd like to us to think about is that these photos were re-imbued with different forms of value. Um, they obviously gained in monetary value, and this was a monetary value, however, that's not about singularity, that's about repetition. Um, so one photo of a woman in an outlandish hat might be interesting, but a montage of 22 of them set to Maurice Chevalier's Avez-vous vu la, le, cha le chapeau de Zozo? So have you seen Zozo's new hat? Um, was sellable, uh, they gained value precisely because they weren't singular, because they did carry the kind of um, repeatable photographic conventions that we know from vernacular photography. Um, so the very homogeneity of amateur photographs, which makes them not valuable in a lot of senses, made them valuable on television. Um, but the photos also gained an effective value. So activating a sense of, of affect lay at the heart of the producer's vision for the series. Their synopsis had described how, quote, when the meeting between a forgotten tune and photographs that bear the sign of lost time happens, an interior and individual voyage is set into motion, a voyage in emotional memory. Each film then was supposed to, each kind of segment was supposed to call up a kind of personal connection to the past. So in short, the segments were meant to create new emotional ties, producing effective meanings for these photographs that had lost their effective meaning, and that's how they ended up in the photo studio, in the, in the, in the TV studio in the first place. So how was this exactly supposed to happen? I think obviously the songs matter. These were songs that people would know that kind of evoked an older time. Um, and the medium of television, of course, does this well, bringing uh, image and, and sound together. 
The fact that the camera could move also meant that it was directing the viewer's gaze. Um, and with each photo spending between three and four seconds on screen, you kind of needed this, this movement to highlight details that might grab you. Um, but it also meant that photos re-entered the home, that they were watched in intimate settings, that they were watched with family members. Um, and so I, I think that we, can, we think often of photographs and thinking about albums as part of vernacular reading culture, of a kind of culture of sociability. Um, and photographs were part of a vernacular televisual culture as well, and they were about creating sociability and producing versions of history and family history. Um, and I think we don't know enough about what photos were doing on television. Um, so the third context um, that I'm going to skip over in the interest of time has to do with a kind of producing a shared European history and imagining a, a future of, of not just of European history, but, but a future of European uh, television programming. Um, in the 1980s and 90s, people are talking about the danger of, of America producing everything that the world is watching. And so um, channels like Arte, but also um, TV5, which is a francophone channel, um, were about bringing European countries together in order to compete and in order to produce their own version and vision of culture on television. But to conclude, I think we can come back to my title, or, or I, I am going to argue that we can come back to my title, um, of, of the idea of the trash to treasure narrative that so often shapes photographic discoveries. <coughs> so I think what's interesting in this archive is the way that it resists this, this inevitable pull of the narrative towards singularity. Even as the archive acquired monetary value, so it helped produce in income for the production company, it also... Um, was not uh, kind of framed around the finding of one photo. It was a value that was always rooted in the fact that there were lots of these photos. That they could make 130 segments set to different songs with different photo combinations um, out of this, uh, this archive. Um, and so, uh, for an, in a way, I think um, the use value as well rested in the ability to recuperate an effective value out of the photographs. And so in the kind of transition, the, the standard narrative is about the removal of the effective value and the Finding Vivian Mayer documentary is all about the fact that Vivian Mayer isn't really findable and she's not a very sympathetic person and it's okay if we take this very private person's archive and we show it to the world. Um, and, and these, uh, I think the treatment here is, is not about stripping away these values to make one prim primal over the others, but about the interesting combination of effective and monetary and historical um, value that can come together. Um, and, but at the same time, and this is where I've sort of tied myself in intellectual knots in writing this paper, um, histories of, of photo archives are also, also often told as kind of trash to treasure narratives. We photo historians become heroes of our own stories. We found something that the kind of evil archivists have been hiding from us or telling us are not interesting. Um, that there are often stories of us, you know, even yesterday talk, like, talking to Kelly about she's looking in the broom closets for where the glass plates are. Um, they're about kind of archivist enemies and disinterested scientists and us at the center of, of uncovering these things. Um, and so I think these photos, off, these stories often don't celebrate loss. They don't celebrate silence. Like they, they, we're not kind of, um, and, and uh, Rodney Carter has an article about the kind of the power of silence in the archive and that there's power in not belonging in the archive. Um, and so I wonder if this narrative structure, which of course I've also uh, deployed here and, and deployed conscientiously about my own archival discovery, I wonder if it's not kind of hampering us and, and if it's not causing us to miss what we don't see yet um, as treasure to kind of, it's not causing us to singularize what we can only understand um, in plurality. 
Um, and, and that we need to resist the inevitable kind of heroic conclusion that these types of narratives are, are driving us towards. So thank you.